Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and their women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their mouths shall dissolve in their mouths. Their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths, and it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. The family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take and cook in them. 
And that day there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we need your help to understand your own word. You are the one who reveals yourself to us. We cannot climb our way into heaven and know these things. We cannot know God apart from that which you voluntarily reveal to us. And Lord, surely in this case, apart from your Holy Spirit, we will not understand. And we do pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, open our eyes and our ears and our minds to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we come to the end of Zechariah, to chapter 14. And I will will not attempt to conceal from you that this chapter contains some of the most challenging material to be found in, in all of Scripture. And no wise commentator can speak with absolute certainty on every part of it. And so rather than trying to succeed where many have failed, I will not be preaching through every part of it, every detail, but rather only through the broad contours that are certain and that are confirmed by other and more clear parts of Scripture that do, in fact, interpret the less clear. And the basic key to understanding this, I I think this is one thing that is useful, the one key to understanding this chapter is that the prophet is not speaking of all the same exact time. If you try to make all of this fit together at the same time, it just does not work. And we have an example of that work, the way that happens in prophetic literature in in Luke chapter 4. This is the Lord Jesus. He is quoting, he is actually reading scripture aloud from the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. And those of you who know Isaiah know that actually Isaiah 61 verse 2 carries on, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus stopped reading at that point because he knew that the second part was not going to be fulfilled on that day, but would take place many centuries later. So we have this feature in the prophetic books, and I think we have that here in Zechariah 14. Some of it had to do with what is going on right now, right now in the time of the church's warfare with Satan and the world. Some of it has to do with the return of Christ on that specific moment of his return and what's going to happen in the final warfare and victory. And then some of it has to do with eternity, some with the wicked going in hell, and, and some of it has to do with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, is that confusion? No. It's only confusion if we try to make it say and, and fit together in a way it's not designed to fit together. It's actually, I think, just the way that God intended it to be, because every word of Scripture is inspired. Every word of Scripture is just the way he wants it to be. And these things, I think, belong together. They don't belong together as if they were crunched in the space of a single day. They belong together in a different way. They belong together in our attitude and approach to things. That our struggles right now have no significance apart from this larger picture. 
What good is it, in fact, to be participating in such unrelenting warfare? What good is it to have to wake up every day and know this is another day of warfare, this is another day of struggle, apart from knowing the final victory? Our current struggles don't have significance. They cannot be endured rightly. Christ himself did not endure his warfare, his struggles, apart from knowing and in light of that final victory, and neither should we. So it's no confusion. These things belong together. It keeps it in right perspective. So here we have it. And the title very simply is The Future of the World, because that's what it is. In summary form, this is the future of the world, with four points. The church will be at war. Christ will return. Sinners will be sent to hell. And believers will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. Those four points. The church will be at war. Christ will return. Sinners will go to hell, whereas believers will go to the new heavens and the new earth. So first, the church will be at war. Verse 2, where I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Now, I need not say, because it's been such a feature of this book, such a feature of all the other prophetic books, such a feature of the book of Revelation, that the church really is at war with the world. The world will be against us. This is no new thing. It's from the beginning. It's from Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That means warfare. That means strife. Between your seed and her seed. And we are, we are the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's, that's a basic scenario. That's a basic situation from, from Genesis until the world ends. And we see, if that's the beginning of the Bible, we find almost at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 19, the same. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies, that's, that's Satan and all of his people, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, that's Christ, and against his army, and that's us. We're the ones who follow Christ. We are his army. And there will be warfare between us, won't there? It's no strange thing. It's no new thing. There will be warfare against, between the world and the one who leads them and the church and the one who leads us, who is Christ. Now, I will say that there seems to be an intensified sense of this warfare right near the end We saw that in Revelation that I just read from Revelation 19. Well, in Revelation 20, verse 7, you get the sense of an intensification right towards the end. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and their beloved city. And I think this is more particularly what is being spoken of here, perhaps, in in Zechariah. And you can see that although there is continuity with the general idea that has been going on for the whole history of the world, that there may well be an intensification, you can see how it might be to the glory of God, that right before the final victory, there will be a dark hour. There will be a very dire and heated battle between these two forces. And it will be to God's glory, then, to bring victory from it. But notice in all of this, it is part of God's plan. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And so it is in verse 2 here. I will gather all the nations. Please do not think that they're operating on their own. 
Don't think that they that these are things that God hasn't planned for. He's 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 worried, he's concerned. He looks down at his church and sees us being beset by enemies and being being uh, opposed on every hand and he's his hands are on his face and he doesn't know what to do. He's done it. This is his decree. He has decided it to be the case. He has his good reasons for doing it. Again, he gets great glory from all of the victories that happen. It's of his design. There are many other good reasons for it. It keeps us dependent, doesn't it? It keeps us on our toes. We, we, don't, we don't resort to our own strength in such, such times and seasons, but rather we cry out to him, and that's what he wants. And don't forget, though, that though this is of his design, and, and though that we should rightly be dependent upon him, don't forget that the Lord himself will fight for us. Because that's what it says, goes on to say in verse 3. The Lord will go forth and fight against the nation. He's going to gather the people against us. But he himself will fight as he fights in the day of battle. And there again, it's no new thing. Right from the beginning, particularly, you see in Exodus, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You remember how that goes. This is no great army. These were a a band of slaves having no weapons, having no training, there they were in all of their, their wretchedness and the finest, well, most well-trained and disciplined and equipped army in the whole face of the earth at the time, the Egyptian army, and the Lord just takes care of them. The Lord himself fights them. They know it. The Egyptians, as they're going along in their chariots, they, he's, he's causing their chariots to slow down, to bog down, and eventually their wheels to fall off. And the, the Egyptians themselves say, the Lord's fighting against us. Yes, that's right. And so it'll be for us. So let's not have that mistake. Let's not think that if the Lord is bringing these forces against us, what are we going to do? The answer is he is going to fight against them. And our job is precisely that, to pray to that end and to use the means that he has guaranteed the ultimate victory through. The Lord is going to fight for us. We see that in the conquest of the promised land also, Deuteronomy 130, the Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt. Or in Exodus 23.20, he says, I will send an angel. Who's that? Capital A, angel, the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate form of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was that angel that came and he fought for them. He will fight. I will send my angel. He will be an enemy to your enemies. How about that? And an adversary to your adversaries. And my angel will go before you and bring you into the the land of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. You see, he's going to do that. The church will be at war, but he's not left us alone. It will not be our fight to win, but it will be the Lord's, all to his glory. So we know that. You want to know about the future? I can tell you that in the future... This, the church, God's people, will be at war with the world. It's, it's nothing new. It's going to happen until the end. But secondly, we know that Christ will return. We can be absolutely certain of that. And we have that in verse 1. This is the, pro- the proclamation that sets the scene for everything else. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. I, I say that. I say it as if it's, it's nothing strange, as if it's... It's something we should all know, but I want to say that it's something that has to be reiterated constantly because people are likely to forget it. 
I, I frankly think that in the, the, the warfare of the world, as they're kicking up dust around us, they want to, us to forget that the Calvary is coming. As the, the world surrounds the church and opposes all the things of God and all of his people, and they're kicking up all this dust and confusion, and they're, they're really hoping, that Satan is hoping we're forgetting that the Calvary's on the way. And it's just a matter of time. And that we ourselves will be overcome in anxiety and in confusion and forget about that. But of course, it goes the other way. The way it should work is that we be completely mindful of that, have no anxiety whatsoever when these things happen, but rather remind Satan of those things, that his day is short, and that soon enough he will, in fact, we will crush him under our feet because of the power of the Lord. Well, anyways, as I say, people really are unfortunately likely to forget that the Lord is coming. And Second Peter, which I will be referring to constantly, um, tonight, Second Peter 3, 5 says this, For they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see how they're saying? People want to forget. Boy, don't they. They do this cover-up job as if there was never a flood. God made sure that this world is covered with irrefutable evidence and reminders and memorials to the reality of the flood. You can go see one of those, particularly in America, the Grand Canyon. It's a memorial to the fact that there was a gigantic, universal, worldwide flood that destroyed all the things that were then there. Of course, with the exception of those things in the ark. But people willingly forget. It wasn't just now in the time of Darwin. It was back then in the time of Christ. They wanted to forget these things as well because they want to forget what that points to. God once destroyed the world by water and he will again destroy the world by fire and completely. And they want to forget it, but we can't. Christ will return. The day of the Lord is coming. Well, in what manner? When is he going to come, for instance? Well, we have these words in verse 6, very confusing words. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor light, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. That's, that's almost a riddle, um, but we, we, I think we can pull from it some various things that we have from other parts in Scripture. Mainly that the day is known to the Lord. That's, that's very important. Matthew 24, 36 but says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So please, if anyone ever comes and says, I know when the Lord is coming, you, you know it's not true. No one knows that day and the hour. So he is coming. It's a day that is known to the Lord and not to us. Could come any time. And that Christ will come as a thief in the night. It speaks of the evening time. And so it is that Christ comes, it says in in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works in it will be burned up. And, of course, 
We know beyond that that there will be no need for the sun in eternity as we speak of the, the lack of light. There will be no sun in eternity. Revelation twenty one twenty three. The, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illumined it. The lamb is his light. So we have that in the sense of an extinguishment of light but also a coming of a different kind of light. And to add to what I've just said this, perhaps there may be a reference in there also that the light of the gospel will be extinguished right at the immediate time of the end. In Revelation 18, uh, 23, we know the light of a lamp shall not shine on you anymore and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore of that fearsome time of the darkness. And of course, that will surely be the case of those in hell forever. No more voice of the gospel, no more light of the truth of the word of God. A reminder of the great privilege that you have right tonight. You have a privilege that is not given to all forever. Well, so that, there's, that's the element in the, the manner in which he's going to come. And I'll say also he's not going to come alone. In verse 5, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Now that means the angels. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels. He's not going to come alone, but with his heavenly hosts. Uh, some, many of, of whom are, in essence, have been waiting for this day. Perhaps they've never been employed in, in anger before. And uh, from the beginning of the world, they are there with their weapons, ready to, to carry out this great and last and final task. And he will come with his heavenly host. But more than likely also, these holy ones encompassing the saints, the departed saints who will share the victory with him, this army of whom we are part that we will come with him. Well, that we can be certain. Christ will return. We've, we said the church is going to be at war. Christ is going to return. And then what's going to happen when Christ returns? Well, the unrepentant sinners will be judged and sent to hell forever. It's a very sober topic, but again, one that we must not forget, one that we must not neglect It says in verse 17, it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem or worship the king. This is speaking of unrepentant sinners, those who do not believe on Christ, do not worship him, the Lord of hosts. There will be no rain. The family of Egypt do not come up and enter and they shall have no rain. And they shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And one of the things we see at the very minimum is a withdrawing of all common grace, all all good things that are currently there. We know that this good God and his goodness sends the rain even on the wicked. He sends the sunshine and other good things even on the wicked. But there will be a day in which that's no longer the case. There will be no rain in hell. There will be no sunshine in hell rather pointing to these terrible things. It's um, intensified, by the way, a little earlier in in, uh, one of the most terrible verses there, in verse 12. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day a great panic from the Lord will be among them. And what that is pointing to, of course, is the deeper and darker and worse reality of hell. It is not merely the absence of good things, but the presence of the wrath of God, where they will suffer great torments forever. Now, Luke 16, 24, for instance, 
It says, we have this one that is spoken of of being in hell. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. There's no rain there. It's just flame, torment. And he wishes only to cool his tongue. The fires of hell reaches, even you see his tongue, no doubt his eyes as well. And all that points to the terrible reality that our Westminster standards teach us and larger catechism question 89. At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship of Christ, his saints and all of his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments both of body and soul with the devil and his angels forever. Terrible. It's, these, these words are unspeakably terrible. And I think that we should never forget the horrors of what awaits the enemies of God. That's why we pray for them. It is unimaginably horrible. The, the, the things that are spoken of in Romans 6.23, in such few words, the wages of sin is death. We must remember what that death is like. And it is for that reason that we earnestly pray for those around us. And it is for that reason, by the way, that we know that the moment that the, the church even begins to ignore or neglect the doctrine of hell, not even to deny it outright, but even just to neglect it, just to stop preaching it, is a moment that evangelism begins to, to grind to a halt. Because it is only when we understand the dire and true condition, only when the voice of that rich man in hell is ringing out to us, saying, please go send somebody to my, my brothers so that they might not go to this place of torment. That the church carries out that extremely difficult and dangerous and costly mission of evangelizing the world. And apart from that, we go about our business, don't we? We know that this church, the whole church of God will be at war. We know that Christ will return. And we know that the, 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 the unrepentant sinners, those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be sent to hell forever. Fourthly, and finally, wonderfully, we shall enjoy God. We shall be in the new heavens and the new earth forever with him. Several things point to that. First of all, in verse 8, In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea in both summer and winter it shall occur. There's no natural stream. That's not the way it works in, in that part of the world. Unfortunately, the streams dry up in, in the summer. You see, that's the problem. At the very time that they most need water is often the time they don't have it. But rather, this is a perennial stream. This is a perennial river of water that goes in both directions, not just out towards the sea. It goes the other direction as well. It's no natural stream. It's what is spoken of in Revelation 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? 
of the reality of what it will be like. So opposite to this situation in hell, where there's not even a single drop of water to be found in all the horrible expanse of that wretched place. But rather, there is this enormous, copious fountain of living water pouring out in both directions. And you can walk in it. First, you have this picture, isn't it, of, of its of walking in it a bit and it's, it's up to someone's ankles and their knees and their waist and, and it is over their heads actually because there's so much of this water, this abundant water and it is for the healing of the nations. Now we know that we will be saved when we're there but we will be constantly and consistently refreshed and brought to ever greater and higher places in the glory of God. We know him more, we love him more, we enjoy him more and we, we will... Um, bask, we will swim in this garden of delight, as, as Jonathan Edwards says. This place, this heaven is a world of love, and we swim in it. And what it says also is that everyone there will be holy. Verse 21, in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the, the Lord of hosts. Reminder of, as, as the man in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, as he is explaining to um, Pliable what's, what's the weight, he said, there'll, there'll be no one harmful there. And you know that that's our problem here, isn't it? That there's lots of people that are harmful here. In fact, again, maybe our last memory will be of all the enemies at the gate on earth. We'll think about all these enemies surrounding us before that great and final victory. I don't know. But there, there won't be. There won't be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts, but rather in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside are what? Dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. They are outside the gate. And we are kept forever away from such things. Now, we understand that such were some of us. We are redeemed precisely from that kind of sin. But it will never again happen. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will never be another ill word spoken, let alone a murder. Not, not, even, not a lustful thought, let alone adultery or sexual immorality. All those things are forever gone. Not only everyone will be holy, even everything will be holy. That's the intense. You, you almost, uh, you're, you are tempted to think as you come to the end of this chapter that it, it ends on a bit of an anticlimactic way, but actually, no, it's kind of the other way. By pointing to some small little detail, it actually points to just how big the whole thing is. We're not just saying that in the main, most of the things in the new heavens and the new earth will be holy, but even the smallest detail 20, in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots of the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And we know that that word is what was inscribed on the very vestments and accoutrements of the high priest. The, The holiest things of which one man on one occasion would wear that sort of thing. That's what's going to be on the horse's belts. That's just how holy, just how set apart. There'll be no more distinction between the sacred and the secular. 
You know, we can, some people go too far and some people don't go far enough. Some people imagine that there's some complete hard and fast divide between the sacred and the secular and the things do not mix in this world. And some other people think that there is no division whatsoever and that everything is holy. But I, I, I don't live in that world. It doesn't look that way to me. It looks like there's a lot of unholy things in this world. But praise God, that won't be the case in the new heavens and the new earth. Every last thing, even the most mundane will be holiness to the Lord at that point. It's something greatly to look toward. And if that's the case, if even the most mundane is that way, then how much more the most important and central aspects of our life in the world to come. Well, we have to make more specific application of these things. This is the summary of the whole future. And what are we to make of it? Well, the obvious and most important thing for those who are not yet believers is that you should come drink of that fountain while you have it. In hell, there'll be no drop of water. In hell, there'll be no shred of light. There will be no voice of the bride and the bridegroom, even as you're hearing right now in your ears. This is the voice of the bridegroom as he calls you. This is the voice of the bride who says, come along with me to the place that I'm going There comes a day when you'll no longer hear this at all. And I say to you, come and drink. And every time I I think, every time I consider this impending judgment of God, how thankful I am that it still remains a day of salvation. Imagine if the voice of that bride and bridegroom were to cease now and never to be heard again. But no, I have this gospel. I have this invitation. I know because I can still open my mouth and say it to you. I have this invitation to you that you can drink of this water and you can be saved. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. And whoever desires, whoever desires, you understand? Whoever desires. Some people wrongly understand the sovereignty of God as if to say, well, there are some people that no matter what they do, they can't believe. God is prevented from from believing. No, it's not like that at all. Whoever desires to come, let him take the water of life freely. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, the reason that happens will surely be because he's enabled you to do it. There's nothing restraining you. Put out your hand and take this water and drink of it. Secondly, I'd say that we should live right now without fear. I say that because, of course, we are constantly on the verge of fear and in terrible and distracting anxiety. And I mean that we we should have realistic expectations, right? Sometimes fear happens because we we don't know what's coming and we don't want to think about what's coming and we, we kind of bury our head in the sand, Fearing what's to come. Well, I, I want to say, let's, let's, have open, let's be clear-minded about this. All right? There will be strife. There will be warfare. It'll be intense. And we should not be surprised when it happens. And we should not imagine that some strange thing has happened to us. But rather, this is exactly what the Lord said was going to happen, and it's happening. And so don't be fearful about it. Don't be anxious about it. But beyond that, beyond just having realistic rather than, than rose-tinted expectations, beyond that, the Lord has commanded us that we should not fear them. Deuteronomy 3.22, you must not fear them. Why? Because he's not asking you to fight them alone. 
For the Lord your God himself fights for you. That's what he's doing. He's going to fight for us. And therefore we should not be in great fear and anxiety. You know, this vague feeling of fear and unease, that's for the world as they await what they fear. And, and for the apostate, those who know something more about the gospel but have turned away from Christ, they have a more certain fearful expectation of the judgment that is coming upon them. They know for certain, and they even know some of the details of it. But that's not for us. We don't need a vague fear. We certainly don't need a fearful expectation. But rather, we have a certainty of ultimate victory, a certainty of eternal life in the paradise of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so all that fear and all that anxiety, that it has no part with us. We fear the Lord and we fear nothing else. And I would say this even. I would say this. When I say to live without fear, when you consider the fate of the unrepentant sinners, I think it is harder for us to fear them. I think when we consider even those terrible verses in in Zechariah 14, like verse 12, the thought that comes to me is not fear. I don't, I don't, it's, it's the thought that comes to me is not to harbor hateful feelings towards them, but only compassion and warning. Thinking not of them as they are now and their, their strength and glory and as they oppose us and all their, their trickery and deceit and hate. But think of them in the future and that horrible situation that the Bible describes. We need not harbor any, any hatred, but only compassion towards them. Thirdly, I'd say besides that we should live without fear. Thirdly, I'd say we should live in holiness right now. Because that's the application that Second Peter makes of all that. What do we do with it? The application is holiness. Second Peter 3.11 Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation." as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. And what I want to say to that is that there ought to be a continuity between what is now and what will be. Not a cultural continuity, not a worldly continuity, not a material continuity, because all the, the, the elements themselves are going to burn with fervent heat, but a spiritual continuity. Because we who are the people of God ought to live as the way that we one, one day will be. There ought to be a living now in holiness, understanding that the things that we see, this whole world and all of its pomp and glory is going to be burned up. Understanding the fate of of sinners is going to be burned up. Then we should live in holiness. We know there's a great connection, in fact, between the burning holiness of God, He who is a, a fire, and the holiness that results from being near that fire and considering that that burning holiness of the Lord. We should live in holiness. And we need not get knee deep into the entanglements of this world. You know, we don't need to let the world get its hooks into us because we know it's all going to burn. We can take things with a a very easy hand and an open hand. You know, such language is ridiculed now even by Christians that we imagine that we should actually be 
very knee-deep into the things of this world and entanglements of it. But no, it's going to burn. And 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And in those thoughts, we should live a holy, set-apart life, a different life. We're not the same. The one day we, the people of God, will live in perfect holiness and beauty and joy and will be set apart completely in the most utter and, and, and permanent sort of way from all sin and all sinners. But even now, as we live in the world, we should not be of it. And we should have our minds transformed and to live in a very different way. Fourthly and finally, we should live in patient expectation. That's our situation. Once again, the very same thing. I think I've even read this already. The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that's what they are. Do you know that? Right now, the whole reality, the whole universe is being preserved by the word of God. It's not in the sense that the Lord so much has to speak a word in order to specifically destroy it. But rather, it being reserved for judgment is being preserved from that at this moment. He is holding that back. Is preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that the Lord, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but long-suffering toward us, again, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Every one of his elect people will come to him before the end. And our attitude to these things is that he's not slack. It is coming. It's coming soon. Matthew twenty four forty two says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. That should be our idea, watchfulness. And in the very end of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seven, behold, I am coming quickly. He's not just coming. He's not just coming at an unexpected moment, but he says he's also coming quickly. And therefore blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And finally in twenty two twenty of that Revelation Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, it is not pleased you to reveal every aspect of the future. We do not know all the specific events. We do not know everything about it. But Lord, you have told us what is important, what is spiritually significant for us to know the things which impinge upon us right now that should make a difference to us, you have told us. You have told us that that the church will be in a state of warfare with the world. You have told us that Christ is coming and that when he is, he will judge the unrepentant sinners and send them to hell forever in unspeakable torments. But Lord, for your own people, those who have put their faith in Christ, they will be in a place of holiness a place of joy and great delight, where even the most common things are holiness to the Lord. And Lord, what can we say to these things except we pray, Lord, that you would bring your people. We pray, Lord, that you would bring those who are outside, that they would receive this water of life. They would receive this invitation 
and put their faith in Christ. And Lord, that we would listen to what you have to say to us. That we would live our lives in rightful expectation, continual expectation, and in holiness, knowing, Lord, that soon enough it is the end of all things. Do you pray, Lord, you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.